Hello, my name is Phil Lawler. I'm senior fellow at the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture at Thomas More College, and I welcome you to my Book of the Month Club. Every month, I arrange to have a conversation with the author of a recently published book that I've found particularly interesting, something that offers a provocative perspective on one or more of the topics that are of particular interest to our center. Those topics are education in the liberal arts, the defense and promotion of marriage and family life, active Christian involvement in civic life, the arts, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. I hope these podcasts will stimulate further conversations as well as interest in our center. If you enjoy what you hear today, please check back to the website of the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture and take a look at some of our other conversations in this Book of the Month series, as well as other offerings from our center. Please also sign up for regular email notices about coming events, both online presentations and live events. Finally, if you're able, please support our work by making a contribution to the work of the center. You'll find a handy form on our website as well. All contributions are appreciated and all are tax deductible. Now on to this month's conversation. For most of our audience, no doubt, Raymond Arroyo is best known as the host of the EWTN TV show, The World Over. But he's also a successful writer of fiction for children, the Will Wilder series. This year, however, he's done something different with a novel, a Christmas novel entitled The Spider Who Saved Christmas. It is aimed at children, and as he will explain, not just as today's children, but at the children who will someday be reading to their own children, hoping to make this a Christmas classic. The book is based on a legend that's already a little bit of a Christmas classic, an old Christmas legend that I, for one, had not heard, a legend that explains, for instance, why there's tinsel on Christmas trees. I think you'll find it interesting in this conversation in a bonus edition of my Book of the Month Club. First question, uh, I think, is an obvious one. Why did you write this book? Well, you know, I had when I was traveling in Eastern Europe, I stumbled across this um, tradition that the Eastern Europeans have. They decorate their trees in tons of tinsel, but they have spider ornaments on the boughs of the branches. And I, I didn't know quite what that meant. I didn't know if they were recycling Halloween decorations. I didn't know what that was, but I just sort of let it pass. And years later, I was researching another book. And at the very bottom of the page in a, in a Bible commentary, there was a little note and it said, there is a very early legend that uh, tells the tale of Mary, Joseph and the baby Jesus fleeing to Egypt and hiding in a cave. And there they encounter this spider who performs an important service to them. Now that's all it said. So I made note of it and I tracked down the legend later and it was still a sp very spare kind of legend. But I, it intrigued me because of, I think, what it said beneath the surface. Um, it was about, uh, you know, an underdog and a, a kind of forgotten creature hiding in the shadows uh, who has a very tiny and small gift often overlooked. 
but she ends up performing a service and doing uh, uh, an act, performing an act at just the right moment and when it's most necessary. And her act not only saves this family, but um, but, you know, perforce humanity. So I, I was just touched by the story and and I sort of expanded it. Uh, created characters around it. And I thought families should uh, share this story during the holidays because it reminds us of the central mystery of Christmas. And uh, right. and it also contains a bit, you know, it, 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 it it's a serious Christmas story. It captures something around the edges that we often overlook and don't want to talk about at Christmas time. I thought it was a very pretty story. And I was curious to what extent you were retelling something that you had heard. And I gather from what you tell me now that it, it's a little of both. It was an old legend, but you've remade it. Yeah, well, I expanded it a bit. I, you know, uh, she does, the spider has no name in the original uh, story. Uh, there are no spider children there. You know, uh, I, I added the bit about her protecting. I loved the idea of a mother protecting her spiderlings, reflecting Mary, protecting her child. And, and you know, that, 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 that impulse was there. And at the very start of the story, Mary, you know, says to Joseph when he naturally wants to rid the cave of this spider, um, because who wouldn't? I mean, these spiders are about the size of your fist, by the way. They're not tiny spiders. These uh, golden orb weavers, they're called. Um, and, and so Joseph tries to strike it down. And Mary says, no, all are here for a reason. And I think she's not only talking about Jesus, but this spider. And you find out she's right. And we all are here for a reason. And I have to tell you, Phil, I'm so touched by the way children have reacted to the story. They inherently get that that central theme of the piece that, you know, we all, no matter how small our gift is, no matter what people say about us. I had a little five-year-old girl come up to me and uh, I signed her book at a Barnes and Noble the other day. And, and she said, you know, I, I get bullied in class and people tell me that I'm stupid and I don't have anything to contribute, but I, I'm like that spider. I have my own little gift and I'm going to keep giving it. And I thought, you know, that's great. If that's all, if that's all she got from the story, she got plenty. That may be the reason I had to write it. That's, that's very nice. And it's, it's a very incarnational theme, isn't it? Because it our is. Lord's birth uh, tells us that each one of us is, is, uh, a special gift has a special gift is a special gift and has something yes. to contribute. And, right. and if this little spider or not so little spider does, then certainly <laughs> we do. Yeah, no, we, we all have, look, we all have this, the, the, the thing we're called to the gift we're given that only we can do, you know, mother Teresa used to always say, well, you know, what I can do, you can't do. And what you can do, I can't do, but together we can do great things for God. And in some ways, this story is a reflection of that notion. Um, and I just loved it. It also Phil, you know, I also love origin stories where we get the things we do. And I think uh, Christmas, particularly, there are a number of uh, traditions that people continue, but I don't think they always know where those traditions originate. Sure. And, and, and the tinsel in a tree, it is not, it originally was not to replicate icicles. It was a tribute to this story. And it's a hangover from this little story and a reflection of this spider's web. So I loved that idea, too, that it kind of explained tinsel. And that resonates with kids. Uh, 
Yes, and it's an unnecessary corrective when you say that. I I think of the the lights in the windows, which have become so grotesquely overblown. But <laughs> but there's a beautiful origin story there that more people should be aware of. Right. I agree. No, but they, but but again, we lose those traditions, and it's important, I think, to remember why we do the things we do. You know, Catholics have this problem where you have all this beautiful um, symbolism as well as ritual that have such deep meaning in history and and uh, commemorate moments and people. And we've lost touch with what, why we do those things, what they mean. And so they become rote and detached from that deeper um, reality. And they should be touching things off in us. And rather, we kind of just go through the motions. And, right. and that shouldn't be the case. I no, feel that way about the mass. I feel that way about, um, you know, many of the, the, the old sacramentals and things that we should sure. be doing intentionally. And this is kind of a way to reclaim a little tradition that, uh, you know, that does point us back to the central mystery of Christmas, which is God made man. The wonder of that, the, the awesome uh, irrationality of that, you know, the madness yes. and the glory of that moment and how fragile all this was and that he was running for his life with his family. Yes. In this conversation, I'm, I'm trying to avoid spoilers because the whole idea is <laughs> is people should should get this book and read this book because it's it's a very it's a nice read. Uh, one thing, though, that you've already mentioned, you've already given it away that in your retelling of this legend, mm -hmm. Saint Joseph strikes out at the spider, yeah. and Our Lady tells him not to. Now. I thought that was a nice reversal of what I think would ordinarily be the way a household works. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm sometimes called upon to remove spiders. Yes, that that is true. No, well, well I I like the idea here. Also, I've got I got a lot of interesting notes. Uh, even Anne Rice commented that she loved the idea of how manly and um, forthright Saint Joseph was here, and and that seemed right to me because. You know, he's the reason they get up and leave town and, and run to Egypt. It was his dream. You know, um, they went on his word. So I liked the idea of him in the leadership position and kind of he goes into the cave first. He sees the spider and starts slashing at the web. Um, it, it felt right to me. And, and so it gave me a little chance to really uh, spend time with this family and really think through what might this situation have been. And people don't often think of what I call the shadow of Christmas, Phil, you know, the, the holy innocence, uh, Herod sending his soldiers out, uh, you know, in pursuit of this Messiah, this newborn Messiah and king. Um, and the danger of that and the fear they must have felt um, as these soldiers are traversing the countryside looking for them. It, it, it's terrifying in some ways. And sure. I, so I, I wanted to, around the edges, capture that because I think, and I've gotten a, a lot of the letters I've gotten, people really relate to the idea of being locked away, uh, I guess, because of the COVID thing. Um, we've all been locked away in our caves for the better part of a year and a half, two years, mm. uh, trying to protect our families and their lives. So that part of the story people can relate to. And I think finding light and hope in that darkness um, and grace coming from an unexpected place, even from <laughs> and through a spider, uh, is both consoling and true. 
You also give each of the members of the Holy Family a part here. Uh, St. Joseph is, as you say, forthright and protective. He doesn't hesitate. He acts. Right. Uh, but Our Lady has an intuition there, I think, of, of what God's providence has in mind. Yeah. No, she, she's... Uh... She she's on another wavelength. You know, she's very connected to her child, uh, which I think is, again, it's true. And that that, you know, that fear that they're experiencing and the way they each deal with it uh, was really important to me. So, you know, people say, well, why do you write for children? Well, the truth is, like Frank L. Baum, the man who wrote The Wizard of Oz, the whole series, he used to say, I write for the young and I write for the young at heart. And that's how I feel about these books. I, I intentionally made this a picture book because I consider this a family read. And I love that families are experiencing it and reading it together because that was the intention. You, you know, because you're really writing for two audiences. And so writing this is actually much more complex than, than I had imagined initially. Uh, and it took me a lot more time than I thought originally because you're creating a a thriller in the foreground for children and a sweet story of the spider. And, you know, that's the, their entry point. But in the background for the adults, for the grown kids, you, you're writing about much more than that. You're writing about motherhood and sacrifice and uh, the wonder of God and his divine providence. I mean, that, that's really at Christmas time and the, the splendor of Christmas and how God takes simple things, ordinary things. And um, well, as Jesus says, it makes all things new. And I like that capturing that idea and that notion. But different generations are processing and this story hits them in different ways, which is, I think, what good family literature, children's literature should do. I was just going to say that, that any good children's book is really a book for adults, too. And I think we we underestimate very often the extent to which even young children are grasping things in their own way, processing it in a different way than we do as adults. Mm -hmm. But their, their understanding, you, this is why the classic fairy tales endure, because yeah. they, they all say something that is needed in the development right. of the human psyche and in development of our character. And I think you've You've hit on it that you're not you're not really writing for children or you're writing for children, but that's not all. That's true. Well, a children and children to be, you know, uh, so it's right. It's a, um, I also think and you've hit on it. Stories, stories endure. And I think this legend has endured and needed to be retold um, because every story, every legend, even myths, they contain truths. You know, Tolkien used to say that myths contain truths, and that's why they're that's why they endure. And the truth is something we need for living. It's a it's a it's a moral tale, or it's a warning, or it's an aspiration that we should point our life toward. That's what every story is. So when I write, and you know, the things that attract me. You know, one of actually an interviewer pointed this out and they saw it before I did, because you're never aware of why things attract you, or why why you're drawn to a particular story. But there, I do see a through line and this gentleman picked up on the through line in the work, whether writing about Mother Angelica or my Will Wilder series or now this series and the next one I'm working on. Um, they, they are really all underdog tales. These are individuals who were slighted, forgotten ignored 
um, disparaged, and yet each of them has a particular gift given only to them that is needed in this particular moment that you capture in the story. And it shows that you have to use that gift, no matter what people say, no matter how you feel about it, um, because it's so needed. It's so necessary now. And uh, that's true of this spider. It's true of Mother Angelica, Will Wilder and the next series I'm writing. So I I do. I see that through line now. And, and, And the type, you know, those stories have always attracted me. That, that is very interesting, and I can't help but notice you know, your message applied to Mother Angelica. If you yeah. had looked at the situation and said somebody needs to found an international Catholic broadcasting network, there is no <laughs> chance you would have chosen her. No, by her own admission. You know, she used to say there must be some reason God chose, uh, you know, a bunch of nuns in Alabama with no experience. She said, uh, you know. Because he chose other people, but they wouldn't consent. They didn't give their consent. They would. They weren't willing to go with him on that journey. But she was naive enough, faithful enough, uh, mad enough to do it. You know, she said, "Unless you're willing to do the ridiculous, God can't do the miraculous." And uh, that's her story, and it's the story of this spider too. Right. Can I shift gears a bit and yes. ask you about yourself as the author? The people who are hearing your voice now, most of them are used to hearing it in a very different context, mm-hmm. delivering the news. And I uh, fixed on something you said just a moment ago about the truth that there is in a story. Mm-hmm. Do you share my belief that sometimes a fiction, a story, has more truth in it than, say, the news, which is always going to be partial. It's always going to yeah. be uh, in, indeterminate. You know, the yeah. news keeps developing. You get a different slant on it the next day. But no, a, story, a, a story appeals to your heart. Is this something, it, is this a sort of therapy for you to write this? You're right. You really hit upon it. I mean, look, I started, remember, my background is, I started as a child writing little stories in school about my teachers and about things happening and, you know, little fantasy things. I mean, I found them in my, you know, my at my parents' house. So I, I guess I've been telling these stories for a long time. But then I went into the theater and the theater is all about the way I was trained. Anyway, I studied with a woman named Stella Adler, um, who is an incredible uh, acting legend. She trained Marlon Brando and Frank Langella and John Ritter. Great people. She was an amazing uh, talent. Um, she was the, also the acting coach at MGM. So she trained Judy Garland and Sinatra and everybody. But um, the thing that tell, Stella really taught us was you as an actor are getting up on a platform and teaching humanity how to be human again. And that always resonated with me, um, the, the power of that platform and storytelling. And so whether I'm telling a nonfiction story or a fictional one, um, to me, it's really about the same thing. But you're right. You can squeeze more truth into a fictional tale because you can control the reality than you can in a, you know, trying to chase the dragon of news. Because, as you said, it shifts, it changes in new information, uh, transforms the story that was. Um, in the case of fiction, you know, you, you can, you can guide the path a little bit. Um, but yeah, there's much more truth, I think, in, in the fiction I write than in what I can report day to day because of that. 
Right. Because you can never have all the facts, whereas yeah. as the creator, all the facts are in your control. Right. It's, exactly. It's a beautiful feeling. And, and you you are inspiring me to get to the novel that I've been working on for the last 35 years. Go do it, Phil. Look, it's, it's, it's hard work. I have to say, you know, the, the Will Wilder series, those three books, and I'm working on the fourth one now, they are the hardest thing to write. Um, partially because you're world building, you know, and it's a, it's a fantastical world. So it's not, you know, part of it is, is that veil that separates us from the unseen things. Um, and you're also dealing with supernatural elements and very real elements. So there's a lot of research that goes into those books, but I'm also, as I said earlier, I'm writing for those two audiences, the child reading now and that child as a grown-up, so and I love those stories. You know, when I read Treasure Island again to my children, I was weeping through parts of it. And and Peter Pan, you know, uh, and you, you wonder well, why is why what's going on? And my children were like, "Why are you crying?" Well, you're crying because you come to realizations or you come to understandings as an adult that completely obliterate your first impression as a child. And that understanding and being there with your own children, sharing it with them, only deepens that experience. And it transforms you. Stories can transform you and save you. Um, there's a reason Jesus only taught the people in stories and mm -hmm. parables. Um, and I now have a real, I mean, we have we have medical data. There is, there is, there is serious research to show brain activity through us via a story and how. You can tell the same story to a group of very different people from different socioeconomic uh, levels, and the story will make them fire at the same spot in their brains at the same time. It even regulates their breathing. I mean, that's how they've tracked this. Uh, there was a, a Princeton study that studied this. NYU also did a similar study. And um, it, it's fascinating that a story can actually get people to breathe in the same meter and um, ignite the synapses at the same moment in the same way. So it's really a brain device, a deep brain device. And Jesus understood this, <laughs> we're just catching on. So <laughs> I think it's a great responsibility. It's something I take seriously and I love it, but it's hard work, it's lonely work. You know, you're, you're alone for a long time and you can't write a novel or fiction quickly. At least I can't or in snatches. You know, I wrote Mother Angelica's biography on planes, in waiting rooms, in traffic. I mean, you know, nonfiction is a lot easier than fiction um, because you have to reimmerse yourself in that world to write it. I can see that. Well, I can't imagine any reward for a writer uh, greater than to think that someday someone is going to have that experience of picking up this book and reading it to his children and re remembering when his parents read it to him yeah. and that joy that you felt the joy that produces tears. Uh, and I hope that your book is successful in that respect. I can't think of anything that uh, anything, anything more, more valuable that I could wish for you. No, no. It, I have to tell you, Phil, when I go, I'm doing, I'm doing a series of signings, um, starting this weekend. I'm in, I'm in Tampa, Florida and Houston and Dallas and Mesa, Arizona and New Orleans. Um, but I love watching families come up and when they talk about 
their excitement about different elements of the book or characters or stories, because they're really not my story anymore. You know, it was mine before it was published. But once it's published, it really is is the, the reader's story. It becomes theirs and they take it and change it in their imaginations. And it becomes something very different than even I imagine. So it, it, that's the power of fiction and the glory of it. It is. And of course, this is a new book. And, yes. and they won't really appreciate it until they've read it the 25th time. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I love that I'm getting notes because, you know, uh, I have mothers and fathers and grandparents saying, oh, you know, I gave this as a gift. But my, you know, my grandson won't let me stop reading it to them where they've read it six times. And it's interesting what the kids pick up on, the things they'll come up and tell you about the book, you know, their takeaway, things we never imagined. You know, there's an image on the cover of baby Jesus kind of touching the edge of the spider web as, as he's, he and Mary are leaving the cave and the spider webs illuminated a little bit. And I thought, you know, the illustrator, Randy Galagos, and I thought, well, this will be a nice touch. It's something, it's a sweet image. It combines the spider and Mary and Jesus. And you get the whole idea there. Um, but a little boy came up and he said, my favorite part of the book is when Jesus uh, reached out to touch the spider web to thank the spider for all she had done. Well, <laughs> nowhere in the nowhere in the manuscript is that mentioned. But I love that that was his takeaway, you know, and, and he was waiting for that moment when Jesus would thank the spider. So, uh, again, the reader, the reader changes the story in their own imagination and 50% of the work or more they have to do. And that's, that's, that's part of what this is about and why you want kids to read and be literate and engaged in a, you know, in an imaginative way. Well, uh, we're running out of time. Uh, I have to thank you for writing the book and for talking about it. I think it's a fascinating project and I hope a lot of people listening to this will run out and get themselves a copy of The Spider Who Saved Christmas. Thank you. Thanks Phil. for being and, with and us. And if, if anybody wants to come out to see me on tour, RaymondArroyo.com. I have all the dates there and I'd love to see you. Great. Thanks again. Thank you, Phil. Hi, my name is Dominic Casella, and you've been listening to Phil Lawler's Book of the Month Club at the Thomas More College of Liberal Arts Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture. If you're interested in learning more about the center or getting other uh, more of our content that we've been producing, videos, podcasts, articles, visit restorationchristianculture.org. If you haven't already, please consider becoming a monthly donor. Our good work would not be possible without your support. Five, ten, twenty dollars, uh, it goes a long way here for our little operation. God bless and take care. Thank you so much.